0: Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Matthew. I'll be reading uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. So would you please stand um, out of reverence and respect for the Lord's word. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Some of you here know the significance of June the 2nd, 1953. Some of you here were even there to remember that day. It was the day of Elizabeth II's coronation as the Queen of England. Last year, there was a huge celebration in London marking the beginning of the Queen's Jubilee Year. And I actually used this as an illustration last year to compare the coronation of the Queen of England with the events of the triumphal entry. This year, on June the 3rd, 2013, is the anniversary of the Queen's coronation. And people remember, 60 years ago, on a sunny day in London, when on an, in an ornate carriage drawn by eight powerful Windsor gray horses, the future queen traveled through the city. The procession was led by hundreds of the queen's foot guards and mounted cavalry. The streets were lined with hundreds of soldiers and tens of thousands of cheering people as the church bells pealed. Now, I'm not a royalist, but it, it was hard not to get caught up in the moment, even as I watched the video on YouTube. The, 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 the event was dripping with pomp and circumstance. It was dripping with symbolism. The procession arrives at Westminster Abbey, and Elizabeth enters the chapel of Henry VII, flanked by bishops of the Church of England, with six pages carrying the train of a robe amidst a fanfare of trumpets and soldiers on either side. The Archbishop of Canterbury presents her to the people who cry, God save Queen Elizabeth. She takes her seat on King Edward's chair, the throne upon which the kings and queens of England have been crowned for over 700 years. She solemnly swears to govern the people of the Commonwealth according to the laws of state, the laws of God, and the true profession of the gospel, to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion and of the Church of England. With that, she kneels before the altar to solemnify her oath, kisses the Bible, and swears, The things which I have promised, I will perform. So help me, God. The people break into singing, God save the Queen. A representative of the Church of Scotland presents the Bible to the Queen and says, Our gracious Queen to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing the world affords. He continues, here is wisdom, this is the royal law, these are the lively oracles of God. Then following a communion service, she is anointed with the sign of the cross on her hands and her breast and her head. They place on her the imperial robe, a robe of gold, representing the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation. On her wrists are placed bracelets of sincerity and wisdom, tokens of the Lord's protection. In her hand is a sword to do justice, to protect the church, to help and to, to defend widows and orphans. She is given an orb under the cross, representing Christ's rule over the world. She is given a rod, the rod of equity and mercy. And finally she is crowned and the people cry again, God save the queen. The archbishop says, God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness and that having a, a right faith and manifold fruit of good works, you, you may obtain the crown of an everlasting kingdom by the gift of him whose kingdom endureth forever. Amen. Wow. It was really an incredible service and I recommend that you take a few minutes just to watch the video on YouTube but sadly the vows that were taken on that day carry about as much weight as most wedding vows in our culture today there were a few similarities between the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and the event that we remember this morning but the reality of God's presence and their significance were worlds apart This king was carried into the city by an equine, but he was not pulled in a golden carriage by royal steeds. He rode on a lowly donkey and a borrowed one at that. This king entered a city full of soldiers, but these soldiers were part of an occupying army and were not sent to protect this king, but in a few days' time would kill this king. This king would wear a crown, but not a crown of gold and jewels, but a crown of thorns. This king would be at the this king's coronation would be at the hands of the religious authorities, but they were not welcoming him, they were about to kill him. The people did shout praises to this king, but it was no lasting praise. Just a few days later, the shout of Hosanna to the son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest would be replaced by the shouts of crucify him. But even though the Pharisees, the soldiers, the crowds, and even the disciples misunderstood this event, this king would not rule for a measly 60 years or so. This king would rule for all eternity. Jerusalem on that day was hurtling headlong into events that had been predestined in eternity past. The stage was set for the most important event in the history of the universe. Jesus had just caused an uproar by raising Lazarus from the dead. The Passover was at hand and Jerusalem was full of pilgrims who had come to worship. There was all kinds of speculation as to whether Jesus would show up on the, at the feast. The Pharisees had given instructions that if he was to turn up, that, they were to, that he was to be arrested. The chief priests even wanted to kill Lazarus in order to cover up the evidence of him having been raised from the dead. The Romans were worried about a rebellion. The people were looking for a deliverer. The disciples wanted to rule. The Pharisees were hungry for blood. But what was really going on on that first Palm Sunday almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus approached the eastern wall of the city riding on the colt of a donkey? The events on that day were dripping with symbolism as well. And they were overflowing with the fulfillment of prophecy. We'll see the answer to the question that is raised in verse 10 as the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the eternal king on the throne of David. Jesus is the prophet of Nazareth. So first of all, we see that the donkey colt represented the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Verses 1-7. to In 21-2, Jesus told two of his disciples to go into the village to get a donkey colt and her mother with it and to bring them to him. Now, the other Gospels didn't tell us about the mother. The, this cult, though, was unbroken. And so, presumably, they brought the, the mother along in order to, to coax the, the cult to, 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 to be cooperative. Now, Jesus here knew exactly what he was doing, even if the disciples didn't. Jesus told them to say to anyone who would ask about it, the Lord needs them. So imagine that. Imagine that, that you've got, you've got a, a donkey and a colt. And these, these men you don't know walk up and begin to untie the colt to, and the mother and to, to lead them away. We don't know exactly how this, how this transpired, but, but individuals did come up and did question the disciples. But they did as Jesus told them to say. He, they said, The Lord needs them. And then they say, Okay, go ahead. They put their cloaks on the animal. And Jesus climbed aboard and they headed for the city. But why a donkey colt? We've already seen this took place in the fulfillment of prophecy, but why did Jesus come into Jerusalem on a donkey colt instead of on a chariot behind a team of powerful thoroughbreds, or at least on an Arabian war horse? It happened as Jesus said it would, because it happened as Zechariah had prophesied. Matthew tells us directly that this took place to fulfill what was written by the the prophet. This is a direct quote from Zechariah 9, chapter 9. So would you please turn there in your Bibles? Matthew presents a contraction of this prophecy. Zechariah 9:9. 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now the donkey here represented humility and peace. In Zechariah 9.10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and he shall rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The crowd who was assembled would have known this prophecy well. And so when they saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem, Jerusalem that was occupied by tens of thousands of Roman soldiers, they would have concluded that their deliverance was at hand. But what they didn't realize was that there were two parts to the fulfillment of this prophecy. That here on that first Palm Sunday, on that that triumphal entry, Jesus was entering not as a conquering king in the sense that they were looking for, he was whole, he was lowly and humble. Don Carson explains that this would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy, but he chooses to present himself as the king who comes in peace. So deliverance was at hand. He was coming bringing deliverance and salvation. But it was not as they expected. And it was only for the minority, for a small remnant of those people that were gathered on that day. The historian Josephus reports that Pontius Pilate, who had recently been made procurator of Judea by the Roman Caesar Tiberius, had enraged the Jews by taking money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct. Josephus reports that tens of thousands of Jews revolted and that Pilate ordered the the soldiers to crush the rebellion, and they did this violently, killing a number of unarmed Jews. Now this happened just prior to the triumphal entry of Jesus. So you can imagine that you would have been able to cut the tension with a knife. As Jesus approached, the soldiers would have been on edge, and they would have gripped the hilts of their swords a little bit tighter. As the chanting of the crowd grew into a fever pitch, But still, Jesus didn't look like much of a threat as he came riding on a donkey that day. But certainly the soldiers had heard about the miracles, especially about the rumors that Jesus had had raised Lazarus from the dead. If Jesus was to become a rallying point for Jewish nationalism, there would be bloodshed. And blood would be spilled. But for an entirely different purpose. Still to them, Jesus would not have looked like much of a threat on that day. They were on a donkey with his ragtag followers. But the soldiers didn't recognize his mission. He wasn't coming to conquer physical armies. In the earthly sense, he would allow himself to be conquered by a physical army. At least for three days. Jesus wasn't coming to overthrow the Roman occupiers as the Romans feared and as the crowds hoped. He had a very different mission. Jesus came to destroy something immeasurably more powerful than any Roman army. Something more powerful and more deadly than all the nuclear arsenals of all the nations on the earth combined. Jesus' mission wasn't to bring war against Rome, it was to bring peace with God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. This is a fulfillment also of Isaiah 9, 5 and 6. Every booth of the trampling warrior in battle, in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We'll see this in, in, when Jesus returns. And in verse 6, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One day the Lord will return to fulfill that mission. Jesus will come back as a conquering king to destroy every opposing force. Revelation 19 presents this image powerfully. Then I saw the heavens opened, and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name which he is called the Word of God. He is riding at the head of the armies of heaven, clothed in white linen, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But that is the second part. The, the, the crowds and even the disciples did not understand that there was a future fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. So the crowds, we read in Matthew 21, 8 and 9. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! John tells us that people took palm branches and went out to meet him. Saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what do the cloaks and the palm branches mean? What do the cries of the people mean? They show us that Jesus is the king in the line of David. That Jesus came as the fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with David almost a thousand years prior. Now the casting of cloaks on the road is is a customary method, or was a customary method with which a king was to be received. Kostenberger explains that the palm branches had become a symbol of Jewish nationalism. They were the the prominent symbol of the Maccabean Revolt, which had happened 200 years prior. It was a time of great nationalistic pride as the Jews defeated their Syrian oppressors. So one author said that these palm branches were like the Jews flying a national flag in the faces of the Roman occupiers. Here we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As I said, this points back to the covenant that God had made with King David a thousand years prior. Please turn your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 17. David said there to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Now Nathan initially supported the idea and told David in verse 2, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. However, the word of the Lord came to Nathan to tell David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. He said to David in verse 8, I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And in verse 10, And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. And verse 11, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will to be him a father. He shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In other words, the Lord is saying to David, you aren't going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house, and that house will endure forever. Now we know that this was not fulfilled in Solomon or any of the earthly kings that followed, The fulfillment of this covenant would wait almost a thousand years. And the final fulfillment of this covenant covenant is yet to come. In verses 10 and 11 of, of Matthew 21, we read, And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So what does it mean that Jesus was a prophet, and why Nazareth? The people knew that he was a prophet. They, they'd heard of his supernatural insight. They had heard his authoritative declaration of the Scriptures and interpretation of the Scriptures. They'd heard his proclamations of end-time events. They'd witnessed the miracles that he performed. And many would have, would have seen and heard these things personally. They would have actually been there. So when they spoke of Jesus here as as the prophet from Nazareth, they may have meant the eschatological prophet, the end times prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. We've talked about this earlier. Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you will listen. But the disciples knew far more. They knew that Jesus wasn't merely a prophet. They knew that he was the Messiah. But at this point, they had no idea what that really entailed, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly what his mission was. This response of the crowds and their esteem of him as a prophet kept Jesus from being arrested until the appointed hour. There is much to be done in the coming week. Jesus is going to be crucified just a few days from now, but there is a great deal of ministry yet to be performed. John, in his gospel, devotes almost half of his account to the events of this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. After Jesus Left this scene and went and taught in the temple directly against the Pharisees. They sought to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. Matthew 21:46. Now it's interesting that Matthew would make reference to Nazareth here. He had already spoken about Nazareth back in, in Matthew 2:23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that it was, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that it would be called a Nazarene. Now Matthew there doesn't give us any direct quotation to any Old Testament prophecy about Jesus being called a Nazarene. In fact, there is no direct prophecy of Jesus being referred to as a Nazarene. Now, there's a lot of speculation then as to to what this actually means. Some people think that it actually means that he was to be called a Nazarite, but I don't think that can be bared out from the text and the context. So why Nazareth? Nazareth was a small city about 24 kilometers or 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It was far away from Jerusalem. In fact, it was far away from anywhere. Even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the people considered him to be from Nazareth because that's where Joseph was from, and that's where Joseph returned to raise Jesus after having fled from Herod. Now, for some reason, Nazareth is scorned. It might be its obscurity or its insignificance. Theologian John Nolan points out that Nazareth was quite insignificant, quite an insignificant town in biblical times and is never mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, it's not mentioned in any of the old manuscripts, whether it's the Talmud, it's not even mentioned by the the Jewish theologian or Jewish historian Josephus. But in biblical times, it was a small village of probably no more than five hundred people. And it was scorned when Philip told Nathaniel in John one forty five, "We have found him of whom Moses in the law also, and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph." Nathaniel responded, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Leon Morris explains that if Jesus had been known as Jesus of Bethlehem, he would have had the aura of one who came from a royal city because everybody knew that that the the line of david when and that david came from bethlehem so they would have been on the lookout for somebody from bethlehem but this his being from nazareth veiled his true origin but then here in this text we see a see briefly that the crowd seems to get it they seem to understand some correlation between jesus and david but they had no idea the full significance of who he was. As we'll see on Friday, this adulation was short-lived. His status as a prophet might keep the Pharisees at bay for now, but this fickle crowd would turn on him only a few days later. And Jesus Jesus prophesied that this would be the case. He told his disciples only a few days prior in Luke 13, verses 33 and 34. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The crowds were not willing to receive Jesus as a king. The crowds were not willing to receive Jesus as a prophet. Any short-lived acceptance would come to nothing just a few days later. And I wonder how many, even in the church, would recognize Jesus if he were to come back today as he appeared back then. People were often looking for a Jesus of their own making. The crowds were looking for someone to, to who fit their human expectations. People are naturally drawn to shiny trinkets and worldly applause, but Jesus didn't come with any of those things. Humanly speaking, we would expect Jesus to come as Queen Elizabeth came or in a far, far greater way. But he shocked them by coming humbly, riding on a donkey. People are looking for somebody who will meet their felt needs. The people are looking for Jesus to deliver them from a Roman conqueror. Today, people are also looking for Jesus to meet their felt needs. Now, now people might not be looking for Jesus to liberate them from, from some conquering army, but they want to be liberated from the consequences of their sin. Rarely do people want to be liberated from sin itself. They want to be liberated only from the consequences of their sin. They love their sin too much like the drug addict who both loves and hates his drug or the anorexic who both both loves and hates her eating disorder people want freedom from consequences but they don't want freedom from sin but jesus came not just to liberate from the earthly consequences he came to liberate from sin itself and its eternal consequences People may rely on the Bible in order to recognize Jesus. Now, it's good you should look to the Bible in order to recognize Jesus, but mere Bible knowledge is not enough. These crowds knew the Old Testament scriptures far, far better than any of us here. But they failed to recognize Jesus as he was because their hearts were hard. Beloved, we need hearts that have been changed. We need the Holy Spirit to take out from us a heart of stone and give to us a heart of flesh that we may see Jesus as he truly is, that we may place our faith in him, that we may turn away from our sin and turn to him and him alone. So do you recognize the King of Kings? Are you bowing your knee to the King of Kings? One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But for many, it's going to be too late because judgment will have arrived because the second half of that prophecy will be fulfilled and they will be crushed. So this morning, as we gather today, as we gather in the name of Jesus, are you really here in the name of Jesus? Are you worshiping the King of Kings or are you worshiping an idol of your own construction? May the Lord who searches hearts enable us to see the reality of our profession. And may he enable us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together.